Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 161 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking back at some of the basics of EV ownership for anyone who's new to electric vehicles. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I wanted to welcome everybody back to the podcast. This is the first episode of season nine, and this season I've got lots of great episodes lined up for you, including chats with uh, EVA England, uh, Motability, discussions about motorway service areas and charging, new hubs, and an update on the ID3 I now drive, as well as an episode where I talk about how to reduce the cost of public charging. So there's all that to look after, accumulating as usual in the season ending roundtable episode. Our main topic of discussion today is newbies, new EV drivers. I've been spending a lot of time at charges recently, not that I need to do a great deal of public charging, but I've evaluated a lot of them on behalf of ChargeSafe. And now while a large number of them were unoccupied, there were several that I visited where I observed someone looking around in confusion at the unit, glancing down at the phone and sighing heavily. In almost every case, it turns out that the driver was someone new to the EV world who, I, who didn't know a great deal about charging. Luckily, I was more than happy to provide my expertise or at least talk to them for a while as their eyes glazed over. For me, it's the same thing. One guy I met was plugging his Fiat E500 into the AC charger on a rapid unit. I stopped and I asked him, why are you using the AC on a a rapid unit? And he said, I literally got this car last week. I've never public charged it before. I have no idea what I'm doing. Do you want a hand? I said, and he nodded furiously. So I ended up spending 15 minutes talking through Chargers, charge speeds, charging curves, home tariffs, home chargers. I, I did give him a link to the podcast, so if you're listening, I hope you're still happy with the Fiat. Now, it occurred to me that given that there are over 600,000 electric vehicles on the UK roads and even more worldwide, there will be literally hundreds of people who are new to the world of EVs and are taking that trepidatious step of charging in public for the first time. Another excellent word of the day, Gary. So today's episode is a back to basics day where we talk about things that are that your brand new EV driver needs to know. Or to put it in a shorter, more blunt way, Gary, I've just taken delivery of a brand new electric car on salary sacrifice and I don't know what I'm doing. Help! So if you're new to the world of EVs, hello, welcome, come on in. For the most part, the people are lovely here. Now you're probably a bit nervous about going out and charging your car in public for the first time. So here's my main and probably most important bit of advice. Go and do it when you don't need to. The last thing you want to happen is you're doing a longish journey, you're down to your last few miles of charge, you roll up to your first public charger and find you can't use it because it needs an app you haven't got or you can't log in because there's no signal or something like that. Panic sets in and that's how we end up with entries on social media saying, this electric car thing doesn't work and I'm going back to diesel. So get out and do your first public charge when you've still got plenty of charge left in your battery and you don't need to do it. It means if there's an issue, you won't be stranded and it'll be easy enough to get home. Of course, if you don't have home charging, 
then get out and try public charging as soon as you can. Try charging on the big tethered DC chargers, as well as the smaller untethered AC chargers in car parks at Tesco and places like that. Familiarity is your best friend here. Well, first things first, you're generally going to be looking for a rapid or ultra rapid charger. As a general rule of thumb, these are the large units with the big thick cables attached to them. We talk about cables in episode 36, the basics, charging cables. These are the units that will zap a lot of electricity into your battery rather quickly. And the key thing to remember with rapid chargers, however, is that they're not all created equal. If I was to draw a fossil fuel analogy, when I had a Honda Civic, or even when I drove the Porsche 911, I could pull up to just about any petrol station and fill up. I could use BP, Shell, Texaco, Mobil, Jet, SO, even that little garage out in the middle of the Highlands of Scotland that only has two pumps and no awning and just sits on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. Because they were all pretty much guaranteed to be working. And if they weren't, well, there's always someone in the petrol station who'd be able to sort it out. And there's spare pumps as well. Now, it's not like that with car charging, especially not the big, hefty, rapid chargers. As a result, there are certain charging companies who are shall we say, less reliable than others. If you've ever scrolled through social media, you'll find that from time to time, you'll see someone ranting on about the poor state of the UK charging network. Almost without exception, there will be two things that emerge from the rant. Firstly, they try to get their first charge from a network that's widely known for having reliability issues. And secondly, they almost always ended up getting a successful charge at one of the more reliable networks. Our sponsors, ZapMap, can point you towards the higher rated charges using their app. But at the time of recording this podcast, early 2023, the following main networks came in the bottom four places on the ZapMap customer survey of favorite charging companies. GeniePoint, BP Pulse, Shell Recharge, Charge Your Car. Interesting to note that the last three in that, in that list are all owned by fossil fuel companies. Now, when I say unreliable, I mean, there are issues with finding units that are powered on, for example, issues getting the hardware to work, issues getting the unit to connect to the car, issues getting the payment to go through to allow charging. The hardware they use is often old and unreliable or has broken and is not being maintained. If you're using the motorway network, GridServe are variable with their reliability if you're at a hub, i.e. six or more charges, chances are you'll be fine. Fewer than that, and it can be a bit of a lottery. I'll talk a little bit more about GridServe later in the season when I discuss hubs and how the M1 is the poor relation as far as GridServe is concerned. The following networks are considered to be the more reliable ones. Osprey Charging, Instavolt, Fastned, MFG, and Podpoint although the Podpoint ones can be quite busy as they're amongst some of the cheapest in the country. If you're wanting to use a charger or an operator that isn't on that list, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily good or necessarily bad. Raw Charging, for example, has a hub in Slough, the raw yard, which is great. Multiple dual charging Alpatronic Rapids, 350 kilowatt charge speed with AC units nearby, never had an issue there but it's not a large rapid charging network. If you're in Slough, go for it. Otherwise, yeah. My advice 
is to create a ZapMap filter with these reliable networks in and use that to identify which units to choose. If you're a ZapMap Plus or Premium subscriber, you can also filter on locations that have three or more units, which means the chance of a successful charge are increased. So back to the charges themselves. If you've got a lot of time or you're in a car park with one of these smaller post type chargers that doesn't have a cable attached, you can use the cable that was supplied with your car and plug that into the socket on the post. These are called AC chargers. They'll drip feed electricity to your car while you're off doing something more interesting, such as shopping or eating, watching a movie at the gym or, oh, I don't know, working. Now, they can take hours to fill your car, but as it's parked up anyway and you don't need to be there, that's not a problem, right? As an example, my ID3 will accept up to 11 kilowatts AC charging, which means if I leave it there for two hours, it will add upwards of 30% to my battery. That'll give me well over 60 miles of range, which is a net win if I've driven 10 miles into the nearest town to have a meal, for example. Now, hopefully you'll have found the charge port on your car. It'll generally be behind something that looks like a fuel filler cap, but bigger. It might be on the front of the car, the rear, the rear at the side, the front at the side, or even behind a large section of the front grille if you're driving an early MG ZSAV. Now open the flap and have a look inside. You'll see the connector socket. Or you might see two connectors. If you see two connector sockets, chances are you're in a car that uses CHAdeMO connection. Otherwise, you're in a car that uses CCS. Uh, CHAdeMO? CCS? What? It's all so complicated. I know, right? But think of the different nozzles like you used to think of leaded and unleaded petrol. They're designed differently so you didn't put leaded into an unleaded fuel tank. And whilst this isn't exactly the same, the principle is along the same lines. CHAdeMO is a large circular connector which, if you look into it, has what looked to be two large eyes in the middle looking out. Nissan Leafs, Mitsubishi Outlanders, IMEVs and early Kia Souls all use CHAdeMO. Everyone else has CCS, unless you're an early Renault Zoe who are alone to themselves and just use a normal AC connector, but that's a different discussion. CCS, or Combined Charge Connector, looks like a big round connector sat on top of a smaller, flatter connector. In fact, if you look into your charger flap, you'll see something that looks like the top part of the CCS connector already there. If you've charged at home using the AC charger, this will be where you've connected the cable you'll find that there's nowhere to put that flat bit at the bottom, is there? Or is there? Look just below the charge connector on the car. Is there a small flap or a piece of plastic that can either be flipped out or pulled out? That reveals two additional pins called the high voltage pins that exactly match the smaller, flatter bit at the bottom of the CCS connector. Don't ask me why it was designed like that. I don't know. I do know that Tesla used a different connector altogether, and if we'd all standardised on that when EVs started, we'd have had far fewer issues with charging, and we'd all be able to use the superchargers now. But I digress. Now you've owned the little flap, you can go ahead and put the right plug from the charge unit into the socket. It should slip right in there without any issue. If you're having problems, check to make sure you've got the right cable, and that you're close enough to the charger so you're not having to put the cable in at a funny angle. This isn't like the old petrol pumps where you can feed the nozzle over the top of your car and slip the end into the tank upside down. There's one way and one way only to connect a charge cable. So now you're connected up, the car started charging automatically, right? <coughs> no, thanks for trying. Of course it didn't start charging automatically, unless it was a free charger, obviously. 
because the good folks who own the charger want to make sure that you pay for the electricity you use. So you're going to have to have a payment method. And that's where it gets really interesting. And when I say interesting, I mean infuriating and often annoying. For a lot of chargers, it's as easy as flashing a contactless debit or credit card of some sort in front of the card reader. Instavolt, Osprey Charging, GridServe, Fastned, and one or two others all allow you to do that. In theory, you flash the card, it approves a pre-authorization amount, which can be anything from a couple of quid to £50 per attempt, and then you're good to go. But not all of them are like that. Some of them insist you can only charge using a specific app. I'm looking at you, Podpoint and Ionity. Some insist you need a specific RFID card or key fob to start the charge. Some send you to their website to start the charge. If this is your first time at a charger that needs an app or a card or something other than standard contactless payment, you're going to have to set this up. Either that or you'll need to have set this up before you get there. And by set this up, I mean you'll need to have downloaded the app and entered some form of payment against that app or card. In some instances, you enter card details directly. In others, you physically load a balance to the card or app from your bank account. Then at the appropriate time, you can use the app or card to start and stop the charge. There are also apps that are specific to certain networks. Osprey Charging, Instavolt, BP Pulse and Shell and others have these. There are also apps that are more general and allow you to use them on numerous different networks. These are known as roaming apps. Uh, ZapPay from ZapMap, uh, the Electro Universe from Octopus Energy, Bonnet and Shell Recharge are examples of this. The issue at the moment is that not all networks accept all roaming apps. So you might be at an Ionity charger with the ZapPay app and it won't work. But if you have the Bonnet app, for example, it will. This is poor, but it's a result of the networks being very picky about their data and not thinking long-term about what's best for the customer. Over time, this will improve. On the continent, there's lots of roaming. In Germany, for example, most networks are available via single roaming apps or RFID cards, and it's very similar in France. Of course, in the future, all this will be moot. We should be able to do the Tesla thing, which is to plug the connector into the car and walk away confident that the plug and charge technology will recognize the car, the driver, the payment method, and deal with all that automatically, starting the charge instantly. But we're not there yet. The other issue a lot of new drivers have, or more specifically, the reason a lot of non-EV drivers hesitate to move over to EVs, is because they don't think there are any chargers near them. And the reason is very simple. With a petrol station, it's really easy to find one. The colours and brands are familiar. They've got the large sites with the big canopies and the totems and the branding and the pricing, and you really can't miss them. But with EV charging, it's not the same. There are a number of places with canopies and totems, Fastened springs to mind, but generally, if you don't know what you're looking for, you won't realise what's there. And this results in people thinking that there aren't any chargers. And it's not just inexperienced drivers. I've been visiting a certain location now for several weeks and parking my car there. It was only recently that I learned that this site has a row of EV chargers at the far end of the car park. They weren't signposted and they weren't on any apps. I only realised they were there because I left the car park later than I usually do 
and a charge spot had opened up, revealing the post, it was an AC charger, where previously a car had been hiding it. So how do you find where the chargers are? It's easy. You use apps. There are several apps on the market that allow you to do this. I recommend ZapMap from our podcast sponsors, of course, but there are others out there. They help you find chargers, check the status of them, navigate to them, and in certain cases, start and stop the charge with them. So let's talk a little bit about home charging. And in this section, we're going to discuss setting up home charging, making sure you have the right home charging tariff, understanding things like time charges, and why some cars might not necessarily do that. One of the reasons you probably got an EV is because somebody told you they're cheaper to charge than paying for petrol. That's right. As a general rule, it's less expensive to put electrons in a car than it is to put fossil fuels. But not always, however. As Melanie Shufflebottom from ZapMap told us in the roundtable episode at the end of last season. For anyone with even half an interest in the world of EVs will have clocked that over the last few weeks there have been many negative stories in the press around the increase in pricing on the public network, with headlines gleefully announcing EV charging more expensive than petrol. We all know that the price of electricity has increased over the last year, and this has been passed on into the cost of charging your EV. However, I think focusing solely on the price of the high-speed ultra-rapid chargers, it's really akin to quoting the price of petrol on the motorway service areas. Yes, you pay for convenience, the price is high, but you don't use it all the time. One of the reasons home charging is cheaper is because you're paying for electricity that's only taxed at 5% VAT rather than 20% VAT. On a 79 pence per kilowatt hour charge, that makes a difference of around 10 pence a kilowatt hour. And the other reason is that you can take advantage of time of day tariffs. Time of day tariffs are those things that are similar to Economy 7 tariffs from back in the day. Overnight, the grid usage drops considerably. A lot of lights get turned off, heating gets turned off or down, heavy industry isn't always working, etc. And as a result, there's a drop in demand. But a lot of the baseload power for the grid is something that can't be turned off. If we're using nuclear, for example, you can't just dial it up and down at a moment's notice. Yes, there's some flexibility, but it needs to be planned in advance rather than working reactively. Plus, you can get nice windy nights where the power generated from wind turbines and other renewables is large. As a result, a number of networks reduce their price for electricity overnight to avoid having to curtail production. Curtailing production incurs penalties to the grid so they often find it cheaper to pay to increase demand rather than pay to decrease supply. And one way this happens is through cheap overnight energy. The main company that does this is Octopus Energy, although there are many other energy suppliers that have reduced rate overnight charging. Typically, with an EV charging tariff, your energy supplier will lower the price of electricity between certain hours of the night. For Octopus Go, for example, it's between half past midnight and half past four in the morning. During these four hours, you can have as much electricity as you like for a reduced rate. The actual reduced rate depends on when you took your tariff out and how long you've been on it. I used to pay five pence a kilowatt hour on Octopus Go, but it's recently gone to seven and a half pence a kilowatt hour. Considering I get around four miles per kilowatt hour on my car, this means I'm paying less than two pence a mile to charge from home. But to do this successfully, you need a couple of things. As we've already said, firstly, you need an energy supply that will provide a time of day tariff. 
But secondly, you need some way of ensuring your car only charges between the times set for the tariff. If it charges outside the specific times, you'll be charged the full rate. With the current price cap, though, it can still be cheaper than paying 60 pence and higher uh, for public charging. Now, scheduling a charge can be done in one of two ways. The first way is to let your car do it. Most EVs have functionality in them which allows the car to determine times at which it charges. You get home, plug in and ignore it. And when the schedule goes live, the charge initiates at the prescribed times and stops at the prescribed time. The other way you can do this is if you have a smart charger installed at your house. In this case, you ignore the scheduler on the car and use the app linked to the charger to put the schedule in. Chargers such as Zappi from MyEnergy allow this, as does the Indra smart charger and, and quite a few others. And the beauty of this is twofold. Firstly, of course, it means you get to charge your car for a much reduced rate. As I say, at seven and a half pence a kilowatt hour, I'm running my EV for less than two pence a mile. Compare that with petrol at much higher rates. My old Honda Civic at 32 miles a gallon would cost 23 pence a mile. And I shudder to think what the Porsche 911 would have cost. And you'll see why this is a benefit. On 10,000 miles per year, you're saving over £2,000 in running costs. The second reason, of course, is that you get to wake up with your car fully charged and ready to go. Although for reasons we mention later on, you might only want to charge to 80% unless absolutely necessary. The third reason you can do this is preconditioning. Preconditioning is the secret source for EVs in winter. Instead of having to go out to your car, turn the engine on and wait for it to warm up, pumping toxic chemicals out of the back and polluting the environment while you defrost the windows, you can tell your EV what time you're leaving and it can ensure the car is both warm inside and the windows are defrosted at that time. Depending on the car you have, the preconditioning can also do things like turn on electric steering wheel heating and seat heaters if you have them. No need to scrape windows, use de-icer or anything like that. It's brilliant. So let's talk about range. Now, I bet when you got your car, you looked at the manufacturer's advert and you read 250 miles range, WLTP, and you thought, ooh, 250 miles, that's nice. I can go from my house all the way to see my sister in Bournemouth and get back without having to charge. Sounded fantastic, right? And then you fully charge your car, switch it on, and you saw that the display on the dashboard said you only actually had 220 miles in summer. And when you started driving, you went 20 miles down the road and found that instead of now having 200 miles left, you had 190. And now you're starting to panic. How far can I actually go with this car? It's even worse if you got your car when it was nice and warm and now the weather's come a bit cooler and suddenly the 220 miles you used to have when it started has dropped down to 200 miles on a full charge or even lower. And then you go two miles down the road and turn the heater on and now you've got 180 miles left. What? Well, I'm going to let you into a secret here. The first rule of EV driving is you don't talk about EV driving as if it's the same as driving your petrol or diesel. It isn't. The second rule of EV driving is ignore that little display that tells you how many miles you've got left. Instead, keep an eye on the battery percentage. The display which shows the mileage remaining is called the GOM, which stands for a guessometer. As the name suggests, it's merely guessing what your remaining range is. Some work out the mileage a lot more accurately than others, but they're all just estimates. My Kia Soul GOM was quite accurate until you got down to about the last 20 miles. 
The ID3 is not that accurate and it gives all sorts of readings depending on the road surface, the weather, traffic, and you know whether Mercury is ascending in the house of Venus or some such thing. The GOM uses calculations which go something like this. In the last 10 miles, this driver has used 5% of their battery. That's, say, 2 kilowatt hours. If they continue to drive like that, the remaining 95% of their battery will last for 180 miles. But if you then hit traffic and end up crawling around the M25 in rush hour, the next 10 miles might only use 3% of your battery. So the calculation will yield a different result. Likewise, if you're climbing a steep hill for 5 or 10 miles, such as crossing the Pennines, as I do when I visit relatives, it uses more energy, so your last 10 miles might have used 10% of your battery, and your range will drop to a little over, I don't know, 100 miles. But don't panic, though. This doesn't mean that the next 10 miles will also use 10% of your battery. In fact, it's possibly quite the opposite. I was at home over Christmas, and I went across the Pennines to Blackburn to visit an EGG charging hub out there. I'm in discussions with EGG to get them on the show later this season. Now, this involved climbing up over the Pennines and dropping back down the other side. At the top, at the highest point of the Pennines, I had 109 miles on my GOM. I then started to drop down the other side. 20 minutes later, after having driven another 10 miles through Lancashire towns on a wet Wednesday, my GOM read 127 miles. Did I actually have 127 miles left? I don't know, maybe, unless I had to climb another hill. But I wasn't actually concerned about the GOM reading itself. Why? Because I used the battery percentage indicator instead. If you keep an eye on the battery percentage, it makes it clearer how much of your battery is actually left. Like the old fuel gauge on your Ford Focus, you never knew how many miles you had left, but you knew that when the gauge hit that lower quarter it headed and headed towards the red zone, you needed to start looking for a petrol station. And the same goes for an EV. When the remaining battery percentage gets down to 25% or 20%, that's a cue to start looking for somewhere to charge. As you get more and more used to your EV, you'll know how low you can run the battery without causing trouble. Now, I've known experienced EV drivers, such as former guest and friend of the podcast, Jonathan Porterfield, roll up to public chargers with 1% left. No issue for him. But I wouldn't necessarily advise it unless you're very comfortable with the car, its efficiency, and its low-range behavior. Now, let's talk about charging etiquette and what's good for the battery. If you've gone through the hassle of setting up apps or RFID cards and payments and finally started to charge, there's a temptation to sit there and wait till the battery's completely charged before setting off. A 100% battery gives you a 100% range, right? Sure, that's right. But here's the thing. When EV manufacturers quote a charging time of 30 minutes from 0 to 80%, has it ever occurred to you why they use 80% rather than 100%? Well, the reason is because of battery health. One reason that your smartphone battery tends to die in a couple of years of charging it at home is because it doesn't have software managing the battery. Because you generally charge it to 100%, then run it down to almost zero, then back up to 100%, or you stick it overnight on your bedside cabinet charging, uh, where it fills up to 100% in the middle of the night and sits there at 100% for several hours before you use it. And all this does is degrade the battery and reduce the state of health. EV batteries can suffer from the same issues, but to protect them, they have battery management systems. 
These manage the temperature of the battery, the charge speed of the battery, and the charge curve. A charge curve is an algorithm which determines how fast your battery will charge at any given level of state of charge percentage. I've got whole episodes on charge curves and how they work, but the short version is that most batteries will, dr uh, will drastically slow down their charge rate at or a little above 80% state of charge. In fact, it can take as long to charge from 0 to 80% as it does from 80% to 100%. So for this reason, it's good etiquette to stop your rapid charge at or around 80% and move off, freeing the charger up for somebody else to use. If you don't have enough charge in your battery to reach your destination, yes, you will need to stop again and do another charge, but it's quicker to do this than it is to stay on that rapid charger and wait for the final few percentage points of charge to fill. So what do you do if you've got a Tesla? Well, the answer is exactly the same thing. Why? Because while Tesla has the excellent Tesla supercharger network, plug and charge, no faffing, there will be circumstances where you might want to use another network. <gasps> Shock, I know. Let me give you two examples. You may live near a supercharger which experiences regular queues or closes for various reasons. As an example, the whole supercharger uh, installed in Winnersh near Reading closes regularly due to flooding and in cold weather being sheet ice. Secondly, you might want a faster charge. Now, while the Tesla supercharger is brilliant and fast, it's not the fastest on the market. Gridsurf, Fastnet and Ionity all provide certain chargers that can charge faster than a supercharger. And in order to use these, you'll need to follow exactly the same sort of process I've talked about earlier regarding setting up accounts, etc., for the various networks. Maybe not as many as those of us outside the Tesla wall garden, but you'll still need to do some. That way, if you ever do find yourself running low on charge and nowhere near a supercharger, you'll be ready to pull into a Fastnet site, for example, or an Osprey hub, plug in and get those lovely electrons into your Tesla battery with no issue. So there you have it. A bit of a longer episode this week, but we've covered your first day with an EV, public charging, home tariffs, range anxiety, finding chargers, and the Tesla network. So not bad, all in all. Let me know if you have any questions, evmusings at gmail.com. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. The UK has been experiencing cold weather and high energy demand recently. Now, as a result, there's been a concerted effort to reduce the amount of energy needed on the grid to stop us having to start up coal-fired power stations to see this extra demand. The upshot of this is that the government is looking at demand flexibility sessions for the population. Now, it works quite simply. During predefined times, customers will be paid for every kilowatt hour of energy they reduce their consumption by compared with the average for that same time over the previous few weeks. Octopus Energy have naturally been at the forefront of this, and they released figures for the, uh, for the first session that they held uh, back in October. Octopus Energy customers provided 108 megawatts of grid flexibility during its first saving sessions period, according to the company. Now, for context, if the program was scaled to all electric smart meter customers with all supplies in Great Britain, it could create over one gigawatt of flexible energy load the company said. 
A typical power draw in winter can be around 30 gigawatts, so reducing that by one gigawatt could be the difference between needing a fossil fuel power station to take the, tr the strain or using existing renewables instead. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK, which helps our EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. ZapMap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features, such as using ZapMap in-car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoy this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to ko-fi.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. Takes Apple Pay too. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want to read something on your Kindle. So, you've got Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p equivalent. It is a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, you've got Renewable. It's also available on Amazon for the same 99p and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingZV with the words, we were all newbies once, hashtag if you know you know, nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know he's looking at upgrading his unicycle to the latest ultra-high-speed model. He can do 60 miles an hour, has full suspension, a range of 110 miles and an inbuilt seat. I asked him how much something like that cost and he told me not to worry about the price. Yes, you pay for convenience. The price is high, but you don't use it all the time. Thanks for listening. Bye.